Welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, February 21st. I'm Dagna, your reader today. Today's mini editorial is written by William F. Burroughs, and he writes, At the behest of the chair on January 31st, in the middle of the budget process, the Woodbury County Board of Supervisors voted to give themselves a day off with pay on February 21st. Should the supervisors be allowed to halt the people's business because the chair said he cannot be there that day? I think not. Again, this was written by William F. Burroughs of Sioux City. And now for the five-day forecast. Um, today, we'll have a high of 39, and it'll be cloudy and breezy in the afternoon. Tonight, we'll have a low of 23. Wednesday, there could be snow and ice in the afternoon. I've heard it was supposed to be quite a uh, blizzard, 4 to 8 inches in the Siouxland area, with a high of 25 and a low of 11. Thursday, we'll, uh, the strong winds will be subsiding and it will be cold with a high of 18 and a low of minus 8. Friday will be cloudy and cold with some possible afternoon flurries with a high of 14 and a low of 9. And then Saturday will be sunny and not as cold with a high of 33 and a low of 13. And our first story is also about the weather. Sioux City to see blizzard-like conditions midweek. Prepare your snow blowers. Get ready to layer up in warm clothing, don snow boots, and dress fluffy and fido in coats and sweaters. A winter storm packing wind gusts upwards of 50 miles per hour and potentially several inches of snow is headed for the Sioux City area midweek. The greatest travel impacts are expected later on Wednesday into Thursday. Jeff Chapman, a meteorologist for the National Weather Service in Sioux Falls, said four to seven inches of snow is forecast, with more of the white stuff to fall north of Sioux City and less to the south. The metro could get around five inches of snow. The combination of the snow and the wind is going to make for very difficult uh, to impossible travel. We could be looking at blizzard and near blizzard conditions, Chapman said. Tuesday's forecast calls for temperatures to rise into the upper 30s. Light snow or light freezing rain is expected to impact Sioux City late Tuesday night, according to Chapman. Most of the snow will hold off until later on Wednesday into Wednesday night, he said. We will also see the possibility of wind gusts upwards of 50 miles per hour, which will create some blowing snow. Thursday's high will be in the teens, but Chapman said the wind will make it feel like 0 to 10 below zero during the day. Expect wind chills of 15 to 20 below zero Thursday night. We will have to kind of shake off some of the cold air there yet on Friday. We'll only be in the teens, Chapman said. By Saturday, it looks like we're going to get back above freezing again. Temperatures could rebound to near 40 on Saturday. We will start to melt what we get by the weekend, Chapman said. And now a legislature story. In Iowa legislature, hearing on removing school books leads to testy exchange. A hearing Monday on Iowa school districts' processes for reviewing and removing school library books and materials some parents and community members deem obscene devolved into testy exchanges between Democrats and Republicans. Iowa parents, many activists with the conservative group Moms for Liberty, told state lawmakers during a February 6 hearing that there should be more restrictions and parental permission required for school books they find obscene and divisive. Parents read passages containing profanity, descriptions, illustrations of sex, sexual abuse, and other content they said were not suitable to be in a school library. 
Representative Brooke Bowden, Republican from Indianola and chair of the Government Oversight Committee, said parents who had gone through the book review process with their schools were asked to speak before the committee about their experience before hearing later from superintendents and school board presidents from the Carlisle, Carroll, Johnston, Urbandale, Waukee, and West Des Moines districts who deal with the review processes. This is not a subcommittee on a bill legislating whether these books should be in schools, Bolden said in a statement. If it was, all members of the public on all sides of the issue would be welcome to come and share their thoughts on the legislation. This is a hearing meant to help us learn more about the book review process. The parents who are in support of these books in schools do not have any experience with the book review process to discuss before the committee. Republican lawmakers question school officials about the review processes. The Carlisle School District pulled the book Gender Queer off its library shelves after parents complained that the books had exposed their students to inappropriate content. However, a 10-person reconsideration committee in Carlisle unanimously recommended keeping the book Gender Queer in the high school library. The committee said the book's contents provide a perspective that is relevant to today's teens and has an educational and social-emotional component for students interested or needing information on the topics in this book. Republican lawmakers, however, questioned the literary and educational value of books like Gender Queer that contain sexually graphic images. Bowden asked school officials in Carlisle, which cho chose not to pull the book from high school library shelves, whether a student would be allowed to wear a t-shirt with images from the book depicting sexual acts. While a student would not be able to wear such a shirt, school officials said just one passage or set of images is not sufficient for a book to be considered obscene. Under state law, a book must contain contain obscene material when taken as a whole and lack serious literary, scientific, political, or artistic value. There is also an exception for the use of appropriate material for educational purposes in schools and public libraries. I don't see how a book could be removed using the standards you've discussed here, Representative Steve Holt, Republican from Denison, said. And so that's a concern I have and something I think we need to take a hard look at. It seems to me there are probably mountains of books that could have literary value and connect to students without having some of graphic images like we see in Gender Queer and some of these other books. Representative Sean Bagnuski, Democrat from Des Moines, remarked there are graphic images in the Bible that if we put them in comic book form, it would not be appropriate on a t-shirt. And as a devout Catholic, I don't want the Bible banned from our public schools. The remark elicited a sharp rebuke from Representative Bobby Coffin, Republican from Wilton, to which Baganuski chuckled. You can laugh all you like, but the hubris that's oozing, in my opinion, from your statement is speaking for itself, Kaufman said. Those of us that are here today are here as concerned parents, and to just make light of that and continue to grin at people that have serious concerns about the materials, I think, speaks more about you than this committee. Earlier Monday, several parents and some students and educators spoke against the proposals in a special hearing held by Democrats. Rebecca Schurz, a junior at Carlisle High School, said that Genderqueer provided an honest and open account by the author that has helped students at her school that are questioning their gender identity or want to better understand the fluid world of gender identity and the many different avenues and nuances of identifying as non-binary. In cases where school officials chose to retain the book, parents are afforded the option to request their child not be allowed to view or check out the material. Trump absent as Iowa GOP caucus begins to roll. Nikki Haley is swinging through Iowa this week, fresh off announcing her presidential campaign.
Her fellow South Carolina Republican, Tem Senator Tim Scott, will also be here as he decides his political future. And former Vice President Mike Pence was just in the state courting influential evangelical Christian activists. After a slow start, Republican presidential prospects are streaming into the leadoff presidential caucus state. Notably absent from the lineup, at least for now, is former President Donald Trump. Few of the White House hopefuls face the lofty expectations in Iowa that Trump does. He finished a comp competitive second to devout social conservative Ted Cruz in 2016 and went on to carry the state twice, by healthy margins, as a Republican presidential nominee in the 2016 and 2020 election. It is genuinely impossible for this guy to try to manage these expectations, said Luke Martz, a veteran Iowa Republican strategist who helped lead Mitt Romney's 2012 Iowa caucus campaign. They are enormous. They are self-made. I don't see how anyone who is saying, I'm the guy, can come in and even get even a second place finish. Yet, in the three months since he announced his bid for a comeback, Trump has not set foot in Iowa. The first place his claim of party dominance will be tested early next year. To be sure, Trump is making moves in Iowa. On Monday, his team announced it had named a state campaign director, Marshall Moreau, who managed the 2022 campaign of Republican Attorney General Brenna Byrd. Byrd defeated Democrat Tom Miller, who had been the longest-serving attorney general in the country, first elected in 1978. Trump has maintained an Iowa political presence, with a national campaign team leader, Alex Latcham, based in the state. But Trump held a kickoff rally on January 28th in South Carolina, where his 2016 primary victory sealed his status as GOP frontrunner. And he squeezed in a speaking spot earlier that day at the annual state GOP meeting in New Hampshire, where he also won the first in the nation primary seven years ago. Though the caucuses remain nearly a year off, they remain the first event on the calendar, and some Iowa GOP activists have taken notice of Trump's absence. I found that quite interesting, Gloria Mazza, chairwoman of the Polk County GOP, said of Trump's New Hampshire and South Carolina stops. Because Iowa is first in the nation, doesn't everybody come here first? Meanwhile, others are making inroads. Though Pence is not yet a candidate, his advocacy group Advancing American Values last week launched a campaign to organize opposition to school policies like the one in eastern Iowa district that has become a flashpoint among conservatives. Pence was in Cedar Rapids on Wednesday rallying opponents of a policy by the nearby Lindmar Community School District that's at issue in a federal lawsuit. The school board last year enacted a measure allowing transgender students to request a gender support plan to begin socially transitioning at school without the permission of their parents. The issue, an early focus of 2024 Republican presidential prospects, is particularly contentious among Christian conservatives. From with whom Pence routinely says, says he identifies, and at Wednesday's event at a pizza restaurant, it had the feel of an early caucus campaign stop. Pence illustrated its traction. We don't co-parent with government, Pence told a cheering audience of more than 100. We trust parents to protect their children, and no one will ever protect Americans' children better than their moms and dads. Haley has rallies planned in the Des Moines and Cedar Rapids areas on Monday and Tuesday. Meanwhile, Scott is speaking at an event at Drake University on Wednesday, part of what aides call a national listening tour aimed at informing his plans before addressing the annual Polk County Republican fundraiser in suburban Des Moines that evening. 
quietly making inroads is former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, who visited Iowa in January and met last week with legislative Republicans in the Capitol in Des Moines and Republican activists in western Iowa. Though several would-be candidates, including Trump, were in Iowa last year campaigning for midterm candidates, these first impressions at the outset of the GOP presidential primary are important. That's especially true as many in the GOP wait to see whether Governor, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis proceeds with a White House bid. But as the field of candidates grows in the coming months, Trump still retains a core of Republican support that could be hard to overcome. In October, 57% of Iowa Republicans said they hoped Trump decided to run in 2024, according to a Des Moines Register Mediacom Iowa poll, while 33% said they hoped he would not, and 10% said they were not sure. Of course, there's a contingent that will support him regardless, Iowa Republican National Committeeman Steve Schaffler said, but there's an increasing number of people who want to kick the tires before making a decision. That's what gives others an open door. Iowa property tax fix signed into law. Iowa property owners are off the hook for about $130 million in taxes they otherwise would have paid under an erroneous assessment formula, but local governments are left holding the bag under legislation signed into law Monday by Governor Kim Reynolds. Changes to property tax law in 2013 and 2021 changed multi-residential properties like apartment complexes to be taxed at the same rate as all residential properties. However, no corresponding changes were made to the section of Iowa Code that defines the mathematical formula used to calculate the number that is used to establish the statewide taxable value for each property, uh, subject to taxation by cities, counties, school districts, community colleges, and other taxing entities. The result, a higher percentage for residential property as a whole because former multi-residential was included. That rollback rate, designed to cap the total taxable value for homes and farms from increasing more than 3%, was set at 56.5% when it should have been at 54.6%. Uh, Statewide, it means a swing of tens of millions of property tax dollars. Local government administrators had unsuccessfully urged lawmakers to delay the fix or make up the shortfalls with state reserve funds so they can avoid for now cutting planned public services to fit the loss in revenue. The proposed fix, Senate File 181, passed the Iowa House 8613 and unanimously passed the Iowa Senate. Iowa Senate lawmakers have advanced another bill aimed at limiting property tax bills for Iowans. Senate Study Bill 1124 would put a cap on how much taxable property value can grow in Iowa cities and counties and reduce local government's levy rates if assessed property values grow over a set percentage in the coming year. The bill would prevent owners from seeing large jumps in property taxes if their assessment goes up. Senate Ways and Means Committee Chair Dan Dawson of Council Bluffs said, It's effectively a ratcheting mechanism to make sure this assessment growth is actually used to buy down the levy to actually generate some property tax relief, Dawson said. The bill would combine several revenue streams into a general levy for both city and county governments in an attempt to prevent the actual property tax levy increases by cities and counties to be higher than the rate set by Iowa law. It would also phase out the public education and recreational levy, a tax that voters can pass to fund school playgrounds and other recreational equipment. Those items can now be funded through a school infrastructure tax, Dawson said. 
The committee passed the bill in party-line vote, 11 to 5. Democrats argued the changes could lead to weakened services provided by local government. 18-year-old pleads not guilty of having sex with 13-year-old girl. Orange City. A Lamar's, Iowa teenager has pleaded not guilty of having sex with a 13-year-old girl. Skylar Myers, 18, entered his written plea Friday in Sioux County District Court to two counts of second-degree sexual abuse, both Class B felonies. According to court documents, Myers had sex with a girl who by law is unable to consent in December at a Rock Valley, Iowa home. Myers was arrested January 24th and admitted to the sex acts, court documents said. Two other sexual encounters in other jurisdictions were reported, but a search of online court records found no other charges filed against Myers. Red States Joint Push to Legalize Magic ther Mushroom Therapy Sean Bot Bly Miller spent 10 years of feeling mostly numbed while prescribed traditional antidepressants, trudging through his day-to-day -day life as a suburban Salt Lake City father of two kids, balancing the obligations of family and work selling technology software. When his son was diagnosed as having special needs a few, few years later, the stress became increasingly difficult to endure. So, like many with treatment-resistance depression, Bly Miller, 39, sought out alternatives and found one he said worked, psychedelic mushrooms. Under a therapist's supervision, Bly Miller took uh, psilocybin, I'm not sure if that's how you say it, spelled P-S-I-L-O-C-Y-B-I-N, the most popular of the hallucinogens known broadly as magic mushrooms, and for several hours was able to confront past traumas, work through mental illness, and ultimately become a better father, husband, and friend, he said. It is almost revealing. These curtains in your psyche are being opened and you feel like, oh my gosh, this is how I operate. This is how I present myself, he said after a sunrise mountain hike in the Salt Lake City suburb where he lives. A group of patients like Bly Miller would be able to use them legally for their ailments under a new Utah proposal that would create a pilot program for the medical and therapeutic use of magic mushrooms. Currently, magic mushrooms are illegal under federal law, and therapists who guide patients like Bly Miller through trips to typically require they find them on their own out of fear of jeopardizing their licenses. Bly Miller declined to say how he procured them. He said it was a, a lot of plant-based medicine it wasn't difficult to find. Amid growing acceptance of psychedelics, advocates in blue states like Colorado and Oregon began their pushes with ballot measures proposing to decriminalize psychedelics like magic mushrooms. Advocates in red states like Utah and Missouri are starting in a different way. Proposing studying them or first making them legal for medical use, a strategy that mirrors how many states, including Utah, have handled marijuana legalization. Last year, lawmakers in Utah's Republican Supermajority State House commissioned a study on on the benefits and liabilities associated with psychedelic mushrooms. And this year, State Senator Luz Escamilla, a Salt Lake City Democrat, wants to create a pathway to legalization and allowing patients to consume magic mushrooms for therapeutic benefits. Her primary motivation is confronting a ballooning mental health epidemic, she said. This is an opportunity to add to the toolbox for our massive mental health crisis, as Camilla said. The policy question as a lawmaker is, do we have 10 more years to wait for people to get access to mental health care when they need it?
Utah, a conservative state where culture and politics are dominated by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, has become a global hotspot for psychedelics, attracting spiritually seeking individuals leaving traditional religion as well as outdoor hobbyists looking to use hallucinogens recreationally in places like the Red Rock Deserts of Moab. As psychedelics become less counterculture and more mainstream, they are also drawing interest from suburban dads like Bly Miller, struggling with mental health and disillusioned after years of taking antidepressants. A series of studies from Johns Hopkins University Psychedelics Research Unit found that magic mushroom-assisted therapy can reduce depression symptoms for up to a year and be effective for individuals for whom other treatments have not worked. In Utah, which has among the highest suicide rates in the United States, all 29 counties have a shortage of mental health professionals. Bly Miller hopes lawmakers consider legalizing magic mushrooms for therapeutic use this year so more people like him, whether struggling with post-traumatic stress, anxiety, or depression, can pursue treatment without fear of breaking drug laws. The push would follow successful efforts in Oregon, but Utah may but make Utah among the first states to create a legal framework for medical magic mushrooms. After successfully decriminalizing psychedelic mushrooms, Oregon voters approved measures to decriminalize all drugs and legalize psilocybin for use in controlled circumstances. Oregon will soon issue licenses for professionals to facilitate therapeutic use. I don't think Republican legislators would ever favor a decriminalization model that says live and let live, have fun and you won't go to jail, Connor Boyack, a lobbyist with the libertarian-leaning Liberatus Institute said, comparing Utah to Oregon and Colorado. The arguments that work in a Republican legislature are oversight, control, and regulation to ensure safety and that youth and, wrong, and the wrong people don't get it. Iowa City Woman turns 101 years old this month. In 1922, Marvel Comics publisher Stan Lee, actress Betty White, and writer Kurt Vonnegut were all born. So was Norma Townsend, then Norma Haynes, on February 13th. She just celebrated her 101st birthday this month. Norma, born and raised in East St. Louis, Illinois, lived through World War II, the Civil Rights Movement, the invention of the Internet, and so much more. Five generations of Townsends, Norma being the first, were present in the Iowa City home of Orville and Billy Townsend, Norma's son and daughter-in-law, the weekend before her birthday to celebrate the remarkable milestone and an equally remarkable woman. When the press citizen visited the Townsends' home for an interview February 14th, colorful balloons and a poster depicting facts about the year 1922 hung in the kitchen area. Nearby was a nearly finished sheet cake. Norma sat at a dining table in a crimson sweater and a light blue jeans. There she spoke about her life, accompanied by her son, Orville, who moved to Iowa City in 1962. He was recruited to the University of Iowa on a football scholarship and has remained active in the community, even serving on the city's community police review board. The East St. Louis woman was one of nine children born to Eugene and Claudia Haynes. Norma and her younger brother were born in their home, she recalled. Her parents were stern. Her father was a good provider. Mama had a good arm. Norma said with a laugh. She said it was fun growing up in a large family. She and her siblings looked forward to Christmas where their mother would put out something for each of them. Norma pursued cosmetology, attending beauty school in the evenings while she worked in the daytime. She received her license and, and she worked as a cosmetologist until her retirement. In 1941 she had her first son Otis, then she had Orville, 
Her two monsters, she referred to them with infection. Orva was a tough little rascal, she said, recalling how her son always had his fists balled up. Otis, she said, was quiet. Norma, a Baptist, recalled how she sent Orville to Sunday school, only for him to be mouthy to the tough teacher. It was Orville who, out of all the cousins, had a special relationship with Norma's father, she observed. Big Daddy promised me he was going to go to my play and graduation, so he always kept his promises. That was one thing that was very emphasized, Orville said. If you're not going to keep your word, don't give it. Orville said his mother received no financial assistance from the state. Her family deemed as sufficient to help support her instead. But Norma didn't ask for her family's help. I had to make it, she said. I had a job to do, so I just did it. There were always hot meals in their home, Orville recalled. Norma found the time to cook for her two sons, even amid her responsibilities for work. In working in a beauty shop, I saw so much happen, Norma said. Some things that some women put up with just to have a man. I couldn't have done it, so I thought just best for me to stay single. One of the happiest moments in Orville's life, he said, was when he, then an adult, went to his mother's graduation. Norma attended night school to receive her diploma because she did not finish her senior year of high school. She got her diploma in 1964. Stand by your children, Norma said about one of her beliefs. When God made a way for them, he made a way for me too. And look where I am now. I'm with Orville. Norma has lived with her son in Iowa City for years, though the exact number is difficult to pinpoint, according to the Townsends. If someone told Norma she would she would be living with Orville, she wouldn't believe it. But life can take people in quite unexpected directions. That's something she's well aware of. I'm happy to see Orville happy. You know, life is a funny thing, Norma said. You never know. You know where you came, but you don't know where you are going. New reward offered a 1995 disappearance case of Jody Hoosentrude in Mason City. Nearly 28 years after Jody Hoosentrude's disappearance, a $25,000 reward is being offered for information that leads to the recovery of the remains of the former Mason City Morning Television news anchor, according to a news release. Hoosentrude disappeared early on the morning of June 27, 1995, on her way to work at KIMT-TV in Mason City. Though the case has remained in the public eye, no arrests or charges have been made in connection to the case. Licensed private investigator Steve Ridge offered the reward as a private citizen. Ridge says the reward offer has the blessing of Who's in Truth sister Joanne Nath. I spoke with Joanne on a regular basis and we have decided the timing is right to seek information on where Jody's body was discarded, Ridge said. This reward does not require an arrest or conviction, but simply the recovery of Jody's remains, Ridge added. Ridge believes that someone out there knows what happened to Jody. It could easily be someone who bears no guilt or involvement, but has knowledge they have been reluctant to share. He hopes that this reward would encourage someone to come forward. I am now extremely confident that multiple people know what happened to Jody. Eventually, someone may decide to talk, Ridge said in a news release. We hope to encourage that possibility. Ridge has been actively investigating the case for three years after leaving Majid, a media consulting firm that provided on-air coaching for Hoosentrud early in her career and becoming a private investigator. She was one of ours, a fellow journalist who at a very young age was very susceptible, perhaps more successful than she realized and very vulnerable. And I've just always felt as though we need to bring some peace to her family, he said. 
Hoosentrud, 27, who grew up in Long Prairie, Minnesota, did not show up for work at her 6 a.m. broadcast and was never heard from again. She moved to Mason City to become a morning and noon anchor woman two years before her disappearance. On the morning of her disappearance, Hoosentrud answered an early morning call from KIMT-TV producer. She said she had overslept and was going to head into the office. The producer called again at 5 a.m. with no response before co-workers asked police to perform a welfare check at her apartment. Police believe she was grabbed as she tried to unlock her red Mazda Miata shortly after 4 a.m. A hairdryer, a red pair of shoes, and a bottle of hairspray were found next to her car at her apartment complex. Police found a palm print on the car along with signs of a struggle. Six months after her disappearance, the Des Moines Register reported there, there were no solid suspects, despite an extensive police search. Today, despite investigating several people of interest over the years, police still do not have a main suspect. The fear that Jody Hoosentruth's abduction stirs is widely shared. A 1995 Des Moines Register article said, Women's vulnerability to crime is well understood, though not talked about much, perhaps because it is a fact of life, however abhorred, and because it is usually a harassment or robbery or rape, but not a disappearance into thin air. In 2017, police executed a search warrant for GPS data on two cars related to John Vancees, a friend of Hoosentruth's who was living in Arizona at the time. He may have been the last person to see her before she vanished. Hoosentruth was declared legally dead in 2001. Her mother, Jane, said in a 2005 article that she believed her daughter is at the bottom of a lake near her home. Her cousin, Mary Lee Moberg, believes a man stalked her. Nothing adds up, Moberg said, besides something like a stalker, some twisted person mentally. Family, friends, and others interested in the case have kept the momentum alive. Four billboards with her face and the words, Somebody Knows Something, Is It You?, were erected around the Mason City area in 2018. FindJody.com regularly provides updates with several articles posted some months. Each year, as the case remains unsolved, tributes to the news anchor with a Minnesotan accent and a contagious smile are posted to the website. Through times of no leads and false hope, the search for Jody Hoosentruth continues. Rich has asked that any information in the case be directed to the Mason City Police Department at 641-421-3636. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, February 21st on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. There are no obituaries in today's paper. We will now move to sports with the headline on the first story, Two Hawkeyes Get One More Year. Seniors Kate Martin and Gabby Marshall will return next season. In the midst of chasing a Big Ten championship and preparing for Tuesday's game at 7th-ranked Maryland, two Iowa women's basketball players are looking ahead. Two seniors who start for the 6th-ranked Hawkeyes, guards Kate Martin and Gabby Marshall, announced Monday they will return for an additional year of eligibility next season. Both use the same words to describe their decisions to take advantage of the extra year of eligibility the NCAA granted all student-athletes who were competing at the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. Martin and Marshall described it as a no-brainer. For Martin, the opportunity to play as a six-year senior provides her with a chance to complete her master's degree and complete college debt-free. 
For Marshall, a fifth season on the court with the Hawkeyes simply makes sense. Why not enjoy college as long as you can, Marshall said. To be part of a special team and to get the chance to continue to be on the court with my friends, it was an easy decision. It was a no-brainer. Marshall said she reached her decision prior to the start of Iowa's 22-5 season, while Martin arrived at the same conclusion in January. I went back and forth on it a bit, but in talking things over with my family and reflecting on what my goals are, it was a no-brainer, Martin said. When I think about being done with basketball and all of the hard work I've put in, coming back for a sixth year makes sense. Knowing that her decision impacts younger players on the roster as well as recruiting, Martin said she wanted to reach a decision before the current season ended. Martin, who redshirted as a true freshman during the 2018-19 season following anterior cruciate ligament surgery, currently averages 7 points and a 4.2 rebounds. Marshall is averaging 4.5 points and one and a half steals in addition to typically taking on the challenge of defining the opponent's top scorer. Iowa coach Lisa Bluter said she was thrilled with the decisions that were announced at her weekly news conference, just as she was a year ago when Monica Sennaro announced she would return for her fifth season. It's always so sad when seniors leave, and to have them back for another year, that's incredible, Bluter said. If you have that opportunity to have that year and you want to be back, it's great. The decisions by Martin and Marshall mean that only two starters, Sinanano and forward McKenna Warnock, will be recognized during Iowa Senior Day following the Hawkeyes' final regular season home game Sunday against Big Ten leader Indiana. Bluter said Warnock declined to use the additional year of eligibility she had available, completing her four-year career as a 1,000-point scorer as she moves forward with plans to enter dental school. All will be on the court Tuesday when Iowa visits Maryland at 7 p.m. The Hawkeyes defeated the Terrapins 96-82 at Carver-Hawkeye Arena on February 2nd and at 14-2 in Big Ten play need to compete complete the regular season sweep if they hope to have a chance to play for a piece of the conference title on Sunday against the Hoosers. We did a pretty good job against their press in the first game and we will need to do the same, Bluter said. It is a big week for us and it starts with Maryland. And now for a business story. Feds fine company $1.5 million for illegally hiring minors, including in Nebraska. The U.S. government fined Packer Sanitation Services $1.5 million this week after an investigation last year found the Wisconsin-based company illegally employed minors and exposed them to hazardous working conditions, including at three meatpacking plants in Nebraska. In all, the investigation found at least 102 minors from 13 to 17 years old worked shifts at 13 meatpacking plants in eight states. The fine was announced Friday by the U.S. Department of Labor. At JBS Foods in Grand Island, the investigation found that about 27 employees were under age 18 and tasked to clean power-driven machines, including meat and bone-cutting saws. One 13-year-old employee told investigators about working overnight shifts and suffering a serious chemical burn after using chemical cleaners, according to a complaint filed in the U.S. District Court of Nebraska in November. In addition, the federal government said Five miners were affected at Greater Omaha Packing Company in Omaha, and one miner 
was affected at Gibbon Packing Company in Gibbon in central Nebraska. For the violations at the Grand Island plant, the government fined Packer Sanitation Services $408,726. The Grand Island violations accounted for the largest share of the total fine. The Omaha and Gibbon violations accounted for $75,690 and $15,138 of the total fine, respectively. The government said that Packer Sanitation Services paid the entire fine Thursday. The company paid the legal maximum of $15,138 for each minor-aged employee who was employed in violation of the law. The Fair Labor Standards Act prohibits minors 15 years old and younger from working later than 9 p.m. during the summer and later than 7 p.m. during the school year. Those 15 and younger also cannot work more than 3 hours on a school day, 8 hours on a non-school day, or more than 18 hours per week. The Fair Labor Standards Act also prevents those under 17 from operating hazardous equipment, including any power-driven meat processing machines. These children should never have been employed in meat packing plants, and this can only happen when employers do not take responsibility to prevent child labor violations from occurring in the first place. Jessica Lumen, Principal Deputy Administrator of the Labor Department's Wage and Hour Division, said in a release. Michael Lazari, a wage and hour regional administrator, added that Packer Sanitation Services had flagged some of the workers as minors, but the company ignored the flags. He added that adults who recruited, hired, and supervised the children tried to derail investigators' efforts. In an email, Packer spokesperson Gina Swenson said the company is pleased to have finalized the settlement. We have been crystal clear from the start. Our company has a zero tolerance policy against employing anyone under the age of 18 and fully shares the Department of Labor's objective of ensuring full compliance at all locations, Swenson said. Swenson added that as soon as Packers became aware of the government's allegations, the company conducted additional audits and training for hiring managers, including on spotting identity theft. A third-party law firm also was contracted to improve the company's employment policies. None of the individuals cited as being under the age of 18 currently works for Packers, she said. Many had left the company years ago. And now for an entertainment story um, from a production that was this past weekend. From Paris with L'Amour. Morningside University stages musical based upon Oscar-nominated romantic comedy. Less than a week before opening night, Ariane. Ariana Austin still catches herself saying the word papa with a Spanish dialect. In Spanish, you emphasize the second syllable in papa, she explained during a break in rehearsals. However, I have to remember my character lives in Paris, and the French pronounce papa with an, without any special emphasis. Austin has the title role in um, Amelia a stage musical version of the 2001 French Romantic Comedy, which received five Academy Award nominations, including one for Best Foreign Language Film. After runs on Broadway and London's West End, the musical adaption of Amélie has, the, like the movie, tells this quirky story of a young Parisian woman who is searching for human connections by performing random acts of kindness. Morningside University School of Visual and Performing Arts will present Amelie, the musical, at 7 p.m. Thursday, Friday, and Saturday at the Clinger Neal Theater, 1501 Morningside Avenue. And that was this past weekend. Because of her mother's sudden death and her father's coldness, Amelie is living in a world of her own, Brianna Pierce said. By performing acts of kindness, she is inching closer to happiness. 
Pierce, a Morningside senior who has performed in several past productions, is making her college directorial debut. Similarly, Austin is making her debut as a leading lady. I've been in other productions, but I've never had such a demanding role, she said. Austin is sharing many of her scenes with Gabriel Ruiz, who is Nino, the object of Amelie's affections. Although he is active in choirs, Ruiz is relative newcomer to acting. On the other hand, Nathaniel Roop is a veteran dramatic actor, but has never appeared in a musical. I'm comfortable acting out a scene, Roops, who plays Amelie's neighbor, Julian DeFale, said, singing in a scene. Now, that's a new experience for me. Roop credited Pierce for putting him at ease. Brianna is great, he said. If I had a problem with a scene, she will help me work it out. Austin nodded her head in agreement. I'm a dancer as well as a singer, she said. If I want to convey some action physically, Brianna will help me incorporate it through my character. Pierce, in turn, gives props to Noah Potteriff, who serves as Amelia's musical director. While some people have seen the movie Amelie, few people have few people saw it on Broadway or in London's West End, Pierce said. The Broadway version and the West End version of the show are very different. Noah was able to take elements from both shows, creating a seamless production. The Klingerneel stage is divided into three major sections. One section represents Two Windmills Cafe, the offbeat restaurant where Amelie works. The second spot is a storefront where Nino, a struggling artist, spent his day. Stage left was a walk-up staircase that led to Amelie's bedroom. Pierce box off uh, of stage business on a set meant to represent modern-day Paris, featuring a whimsical score that includes songs like Tour de France, there's no place like Gnome, and times are hard for dreamers. The musical version of Amelie brings the world of romantic comedy into a college campus stage. That's the hope of Pierce. When the opportunity for love presents itself, Amelie struggles to take the first step, she suggested. But who knows? Love is always in the air in Paris, isn't it? We'll now move to Dear Abby in our first letter. I am in mourning for my husband. He's still alive, but he up and left six months ago and sent me a text saying he's done. He is living with another woman. I didn't see it coming. We were planning our retirement move up to our cabin. One weekend, he kicked me out of the cabin, and three hours later had her join him there. I feel so lost. At this point, I don't want him back because I feel he has committed the ultimate betrayal. I have started counseling because I am so confused, grieving, and upset. My counselor seems to think he's leaving the door open to a one-day return. He still comes once a month to pay the bills. However, when he does, he doesn't want me there. He texts to make sure I will be gone for a few hours, so I leave. I miss him, but I can't get beyond the pain and betrayal. He has lost a ton of weight and looks terrible. He has aged so much. He's 66, clinically depressed, and an alcoholic. He's also a narcissist. He would never admit he did something wrong. It was always my fault. I never knew what I would be facing after work. I'm still in the house and slowly packing up his clutter that I was never allowed to touch. He is a hoarder. I'm lonely, but I'm enjoying my peace. We don't communicate at all. My question is, do you think he is going to come walking back like in like nothing happened? Signed, Abandoned in Minnesota. And Abby's response, I hope not. And if he did show up, why on earth would you want him back? Frankly, I'm surprised that your therapist would suggest you would open a, the door to him. You are free. Consult an attorney, clear out the physical and emotional debris in your life, and enjoy it. 
Dear Abby, my fiancé and I are preparing to move south because we are tired of cold weather. The biggest issue is my cat, Buster. He isn't a kitten anymore. He is nine. Buster's in good health, but we are being advised not to take him from the apartment we share with my dad due to Buster's age. My dad is a mediocre caretaker at best. Half the time he doesn't clean the litter box or even take out the garbage. I'm convinced Buster would end up being neglected. I have been accused of planning to steal him. Yesterday, I found out Dad tested positive for COVID and did not tell anyone until we were in the apartment. He puts us all at risk. This kind of carelessness scares me about leaving Buster with him. Should I take him with us or heed the advice about not stressing an older pet and leave him with Dad? I will be heartbroken if I can't take him. Signed, Sad, Stressed Cat Mom. And Abby's response, if the advice about stressing an older cat came from a veterinarian, it merits consideration. If it did not, then have no qualms about taking Buster with you when you make the move. It'd be a better, it would be better to do that than to leave him in an environment where you would worry that he's being neglected. We'll now move to another advice column written by Amy Dickinson in the first letter here. I have been friends with Susan for over 35 years. I have shared many extremely sensitive and delicate problems with her. She has taken on the role of giving me lots of personal advice. In the past, her advice was helpful, but in recent years, it has become more intrusive. A number of times, I have started a conversation by saying, I just want to tell you about this. No advice about it, please. She listens and then directly defies my request and insists on giving her advice no matter what. This situation is causing me a great deal of emotional distress. I purchased a new house, and over a period of six to seven months, I didn't tell her. Why? Because I wanted to make the important decisions about what home to purchase, what neighborhood I wanted to live in, and I knew that at some point, if I told her, she would find a way to influence my decision-making. When I did finally tell her, after moving in, she was shocked. She has also given me legal advice. She is not an attorney, but her husband is. That was downright inaccurate. When I pointed this out, she brushed it off. I haven't talked to her in over nine months. Why? Because she advised me about an aspect of writing my will, which was completely inaccurate. I became so exasperated that I felt like exploding inside. I've been so distressed that I haven't even finished writing my will, even with my attorney's assistance. I am in my 60s, female and single. My friends are my family. What should I do? Signed, wanting to turn off the advice faucet. And the res uh, response is, hearing advice feels worse than someone merely expressing an opinion different than your own. Because when someone offers advice, what they are actually telling you is what to do. And if this advice is unsolicited, they are assuming that you need it, perhaps because your own judgment is flawed. Your internal reaction to all of this unsolicited advice is understandable. However, you don't mention ever discussing this with Susan. Your passivity has contributed to the problem. Yes, you have tried to head her off at the pass, but that hasn't worked, and so now you are absorbing all of this explosive rage, rather than risk telling this very old friend how her behavior affects you. If you want to continue with this friendship, you should give Susan the benefit of knowing the intensity of your reaction to her unsolicited advice. Say, I've stopped being in touch so often because I find your advice oppressive. I've been looking for friendship, not advice. Can we try for a reset? If Susan is so locked into her habit, or so dense, that she responds to this statement by offering advice, you could interrupt her. Oops, there you, you're doing it again. That's exactly what has been bothering me so much. 
And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, February 21st. I'm Dagna, your reader today. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thank you for listening. This is Tom Hatton with an Irish short take from the book entitled A Culinary History of Iowa. And this article, actually it says chapter 2, is entitled Immigrants Influence Iowa's Food Traditions. Hundreds of thousands of pioneers and immigrants from many parts of Europe and beyond flocked, flocked to Iowa in the 19th and early 20th centuries in search of a better life. Whether that meant economic opportunity, religious freedom, or the chance to create a utopian society, these newcomers brought a variety of unique food traditions with them and transformed Iowa's culinary history. Some immigrants, like the French Icarians, were motivated by ideological ideals when they settled in America. The new state of Iowa, specifically Adams County, became the promised land for Frenchmen and women pursuing their dream to create a communal utopian society where everyone was equal. By some accounts, their Icaria colony in southwest Iowa was the longest existing, non-religious, purely communal experiment in American history. The first Icarian party arrived in Iowa in 1852. They purchased about 3,000 acres of land from the United States government at $1.25 per acre to build their new colony near Corning. 
Living conditions in the untamed lands of southwest Iowa were often harsh. Log houses, some without wood floors or windows, were the French settlers' only shelter against the brutal winter. Most of the Icarians' land was unfenced, unbroken prairie, and there was not one settler along the trail before they reached Icaria, according to some reports. Supplies for the colony often had to be hauled overland for hundreds of miles. Only a few basic ingredients, including milk, butter, cornbread, and bacon, formed the daily menu. As a communal society, the Icarians worked together on the farms and ate together in a communal dining hall, where evening meals were sometimes followed by music or lectures spoken in French. Little by little, living conditions in the colony improved as the Icarians managed, managed to establish a fairly successful agricultural enterprise. When wool prices, prices skyrocketed with the outbreak of the Civil War, the Icarians thrived by selling wool and other supplies to the Union Army. While the war ended in 1865, trouble was brewing in the Icaria colony by the 1870s. Much of the conflict revolved around little gardens, according to an April 1921 article in the Iowa History Journal, The Pelham Pest. Earlier in the history of the Icarian community in Iowa, each family had been permitted to cultivate a little garden around their log house where flowers might be raised. Some families had planted vines and even fruit trees. Now that now that these plants were bearing fruit, the more radical members of the colony could not tolerate this violation of their rules against private property. The possessors of the gardens, however, clung to their little plots of ground. It wasn't much, but it was theirs. The authorities tried to settle the quarrel with a compromise. As each family moved from their log house to a new frame house, their little garden was to be given up. There would be no simple resolution to this dispute, however, which triggered open hostilities. The radicals claimed that the community had violated its constitution and announced their intent to withdraw. They also advocated an aggressive style of communism and appealed to a circuit court to revoke the charter granted to the community in 1860 on the grounds that Icaria was really a communist establishment instead of an agricultural society, as the Articles of Incorporation provided. By 1879, a group of younger progressive colony members had split from the older, more conservative members. This marked the beginning of the end for the Icarians' utopian experiment in Iowa. In 1898, members voted to end the colony. By then, it consisted mostly of elders who could no longer continue the hard work of operating the colony. The Icarian movement in America was over. The legacy of the Icarian movement endures, however. The French Icarian Colony Board of Trustees was formed in recent years and has been rebuilding the French Icarian village on a portion of original Icarian land east of Corning. The 1878 Refectory Communal Dining Hall and 1860 One-Room Icaria School have been restored for tours and research. History comes to life at the French Icarian Village through events like the annual Fête de May, Festival of Corn, which is held in the fall. The original Fête de May was a celebration held by the Icarians each fall after all the crops were harvested. The feast was served in the communal dining hall to everyone who came to help on the final day of corn harvest. In late September 2015, the Creston News Advertiser promoted the French Icarian Village's fourth annual Fête de May, which included a four-course French supper, 
featuring flavors of the Alsace region. It's a modern taste of the French Icarian's quest for utopia and Iowa. And that was an excerpt from A Culinary History of Iowa by Darcy Doherty Malsey and other offbeat stuff by Eric Jones, Dan Coffey, and Barrett Thorkelson.